Good morning. It is a great honor and a privilege to be here with you today and to celebrate both the wonderful, wonderful ministry and mission of the Lord our God, Dwight Moody. How are you, sir? Good to see you. It's a wonderful, wonderful day to celebrate, and even in this season of Lent, just to remember the grace that has been offered to us, and you all have extended a tremendous amount of grace to Reverend Jessica, to Dr. Stacy for their wonderful introduction of the music. Uh, you all probably take it for granted. Uh, I was zipping down 75 last night, and I, I have this CD of classical organ. And uh, I played it in. And, um, you know, in these days of praise and worship, in these days of uh, rock bands, we're throwing away pipe organs. But uh, coming down 75 last night, I turned it up as loud as I could stand it. <laughs> Nobody but me in the car, so I could really appreciate the organ and I appreciate you know, your ministry. These wonderful uh, students uh, who have assisted in chapel, it's my pleasure to be here and I'm excited about it. So this text is found in the 139th chapter of Psalms in the 17th through the 18th verse, and it reads, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seas. When I awake, I am still with thee. Would you just bow with me in a word of prayer? <clears throat> God, we thank you now just for this marvelous and gracious opportunity. It is amazing that you have gathered us, this group of people together for a divine purpose. We believe that we're not here by accident. We believe that you have something in mind that you want to accomplish. God, I promise you that I will be a hearer and not only hear the word, but do it. God, I promise you this morning that I won't be the same person when this is finished as when I walked in this door. Something about my life is going to change. Something about my life is going to be different as you open the word of life to us all. Now, God, you be the preacher for no one can preach unless you first speak. No one can say anything unless you first send the anointing. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And if you agree with this prayer, let me hear you say amen, amen. and amen. Howard Thurman, who is the prolific African-American, both preacher and mystic, he lived to be 100, uh -uh, he lived to be 81 years old and prayed this 139th Psalm every day of his adult life. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Howard Thurman, the uh, prolific African-American mystic devotional writer. Jesus and the Disinherited is his most popular work. He is a fabulous writer, and he says that he prayed the 139th Psalm every day of his adult life. Could you pray this Psalm every day for the rest of your life? Could you pray any scripture or, or, or any Psalm every day for the rest of your life? Now, we might all pray scripture for the rest of our lives, 
but the same scripture for the rest of our lives, the same scripture. He prayed this scripture every day of his adult life. He called this 139th Psalm the Great Passage. He said that if the entire Bible would be destroyed and he could only have one chapter, the entire Bible be destroyed and he could only have one chapter, he would choose the 139th Psalm. He even wrote a poem for every line of this 139th Psalm. A whole poem for every line of the 139th Psalm. How could he pray this 139th Psalm every day except that he found within the boundaries of this text the presence of God speaking illuminating revelation on a daily basis? How could he do that except this Psalm gave him access to a limitless ocean of hope, the very voice of God speaking the thoughts of God, feeding him the words of life? How could he do that except it be the fulfillment of what Jesus said, quoting the Hebrew Bible that we don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. How could you do this except that it speaks the very thoughts of God or allows one to contemplate the thoughts of God, God communicating God's wisdom and God's thoughts every day. No wonder the psalmist could say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seven seas. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seven seas. So we as preachers, as theologians, as students, as professors of theology, as those of us who advance the purposes of those that study, reflect, pray, and read and write the thoughts of God. We have staff people who help us, those of us who are professors and those of us who are students and theologians, and I wonder if all of us as a collective group have ever taken the time to stop and say, how precious are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the sands on the seas. I wonder if we have the humility to appreciate the thoughts of God. So what do I mean by humility to appreciate? the thoughts of God. So no matter how profound your paper or your sermon is or how deep or weighty your most academic and spiritual insights, I hate to break this to you, but the truth is you are simply handling one grain of sand of an endless number of the thoughts of God. I will say that again. <laughs> Matter of fact, I wrote to say it again. <laughs> no matter how weighty your most academic and spiritual insights, I hate to break this to you, 
You're simply handling one grain of sand of an endless number of the thoughts of God. Much like the grains that, that make up the sands on the seas, no matter how good it is, no matter how profound it is, no matter how awesome, even if you get an A, you're still simply handling one grain of sand. It is but a grain of the limitless ocean of the thoughts of the voice of God. How precious to me, O oh God, are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seas. Which means I just backed into my first point. The humility to see that no matter how insightful your insight is from God, it is one grain of God's thoughts of an endless number of God's thoughts like grains of sand on the seas. This is then why the writer says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Second thing I want to suggest to you that even though it is one grain, we could in fact spend one lifetime on one grain of sand. You see, one grain is a microcosmos constituted by millions of atoms, protons, and neutrons, an infinity and a universe of infinity in and of itself. To give you the sense of the cosmos that is one grain of sand, let's look at the atoms in one grain of salt. One grain of salt is similar to one grain of sand. So let's suppose that we want to count all of the atoms in a single grain of salt. And let's assume that we are able to count one billion atoms per second. Despite our considerable speed, we would need over 500 years to count the number of atoms in one tiny grain of salt. We would need over 500 years at one billion atoms a second to count the atoms in one grain of salt. Despite its exceedingly small size, there is a flawless, unique, and complex system inside the atom comparable in sophistication to the system that we see in the universe with our eyes when we look up at the skies. So one verse of scripture is so complex that you could spend 500 years at 1 billion insights per second to count the insights and the revelation from God. It might explain how we could pray the same psalm every day for all of our adult lives. It might explain why all these scholars and all these theologians and all these professors and all these dissertations exploring generation upon generation, all of our books, our sermons, our thoughts, our meditations, our music, all our reflections are all in reality one atom in one grain of sand of the limitless seashore of the thoughts of God. And then, thirdly, I'm here to say that one grain, just one verse, can save the world. One grain can save a life, it can save a soul, it can save a home. 
It can save a community. It can save a world. With one grain, we offer hope to the hopeless. We offer a friend to the friendless. One grain can stop a war. One grain can overcome a hurt. One grain can cancel the sting of death. One grain can rescue the lost. One grain can give sight to the blind. One grain can make deaf folk hear. One grain can make the lame leap for joy. One grain can feed the world, remove the deterioration of our common home. One grain can finally resolve the long shadow of racism from human relationships. One grain can finally bring every kind of justice that you possibly could name. One grain. One verse. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall walk. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk one grain and not faint. One grain, one verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy, one verse, great is thy faithfulness. One verse, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto God's self. One verse, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One verse, how beautiful are the feet of they that proclaim good news and bring tidings of great joy. One verse, by the foolishness of preaching. One verse, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I got to this point, I was supposed to close the sermon. This is, this is the African-American tradition of celebration, where you do a celebrative run. And <laughs> but one of the rules of celebration is the celebration has to be appropriate to the sermon or text that you're preaching <laughs> I can talk more about that later but there's one piece of the verse of this text that still yet dangles. Yes, your thoughts are precious, and to count them, they would be like the sand of the seas, but then this, when I'm awake, or when I awake, I'm still with you. I mean, it's almost, you'd almost miss it in the majestic and the majesty of the first part that 17th and 18th verse, but still this, when I awake, I am still with you. This takes us all the way back to the beginning and the overall meaning of the entire Psalm 139. God is the all-knowing God. The Lord knows. The Lord knows you. The all-knowing God. The Lord knows you. The Lord knows those who belong to the Lord. The Hebrew to know appears seven times. You know me. 
you know me when. You know it completely. Such knowledge. God knows our thoughts. God knows our action. God knows us. Even in our mother's womb, God knows us. God knows our thoughts before we think them. God knows our thoughts before we speak them. God knows us. God knows us. God knows us. Now, the beauty of the knowledge that God knows us is that God's knowledge is relational and not judgmental. God knows us in relationship and not singularly in judgment. God knows us, and even if there is judgment, there is the possibility of a return. A moment will be offered to us to restore right relationship. God knows us in relationship to bestow favor on us, to bestow revelation on us. God's thoughts are revelation. God wants to reveal God's self. God is in relationship with you to reveal God's truth, God's wisdom, God's knowledge that is as numerous as the grains of sand on the seven seas, but ultimately and totally God's self. I want to go back to Howard Thurman. He said this verse represented to him hope. He said, hope meant that the dichotomies and the contradictions of life are not final. He said that one day we will know the ultimate destiny of everything, which is wholeness and an awareness of what he called a congenital unity. As I look at the divisions in our world, I just got through watching some of the election campaign, the tremendous divisions in our nation, in our world, in our communities, in our cities. And for some of us, the divisions within ourselves. Thurman says that these dichotomies and contradictions are not final. That life has a congenital unity. He then suggested that he noticed, particularly in those people who work for social justice and people who work for improving social conditions, a kind of despair. He said that many activists recognized that what they were doing was good and true and significant, but they were working fundamentally against the way things are in life, and it caused in them a kind of despair. Human beings, for example, are fundamentally selfish. And to improve things, people are asked to be unselfish. People are asked to be concerned with someone outside of their group. Persons that they would not consider their brothers and sisters. You do know that most of us only consider the people of our group our brothers and our sisters. You do know that the call of the gospel is expanding our circle of concern beyond those who look like us, talk like us, think like us, dress like us, walk like that, grew up in the same school. Or home. You do know that the gospel is always pushing out beyond our circle, making it wider and wider and wider. But most people are brothers and sisters only to the people of their group.
And so when you ask people to be unselfish, it does indeed take the gospel. And it takes a conversion to the gospel by those who already many accept the gospel. In other words, those who work for change experience the entrenched forces of opposition. And those forces of opposition mutate and find ways to maneuver, to co-op, progress, and movement. I really thought, I really did think that with the election of Barack Obama, we maybe might be able to overcome the racial paradigm of our nation. I really did. I really thought we might be on the verge of a post-racial era. I was hopeful and optimistic, but now, but now, it's worse. Those who work for justice, for the common unity of humanity, that everybody can have a meal on their table, education in their brains, clean water in their houses, hope in their souls, medicine for their bodies. It gets pretty daunting sometimes. Those who work for such things come to know the depth of the reality of human nature and the entrenchment of forces against freedom and justice. Thurman was aware of this truth and he labeled it a susceptibility to despair. But he said in this text, is fundamentally structured, it's structured such that a felt sense of unity, that all of life's contradictions, all of life's dichotomies, all of life's dualism, black and white and good and evil and straight and gay and war and peace and rich and poor, student and teacher, German and American, all dualisms would be exhausted in God's unity. He said, Psalm 139 and the line that the day and the night are the same to you is an indication of the breakdown of the dualities and the contradictions of life. This gives him hope and courage. So much so that he called this chapter the great passage. Such that if all of the entire Bible would be destroyed, he would just take this one verse. He called it the ground of his hope. gave him courage. The most abject and contradictions and dualisms of life. Let me break it and close it and bring it to its meaning like this. He said the original meaning to the word hope was an inlet that connects the lagoon to the ocean. That the inlet that connects the lagoon to the ocean is the original meaning of the word hope. The inlet allows the lagoon to have free and easy access to the ocean of hope. And the ocean of hope has access to the lagoon. He said that scripture and one verse of scripture is hope. That one verse of scripture is the inlet to a limitless ocean of hope. And that one verse that will allow access between your soul, that's the lagoon, 
and the thoughts of God that are as limitless as the sand on the seven seas. That one verse allows the free and easy access. One verse overcomes the contradictions and the dichotomies. I told a friend of mine that lost uh, their daughter, 38-year-old daughter, in a car accident at 2 o'clock in the morning. They asked me to preach the eulogy, and I said, one verse can allow you easy access. Death looks like a dichotomy. Death looks like a dualism. Life on one side and death on the other, but in God there is a congenital unity such that in one verse one verse can provide access and inlet can I ask you what's your one verse I know you think you got to know the whole Bible. I know you come to seminary to memorize the whole Bible. <laughs> One verse. Most of us have one verse by which God spoke, by which God anchors, by which God Psalm 46, 1 is my one verse. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in the time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and the waters roar and foam. That one verse is an inlet. What's your verse? One grain to a limitless soul when I awake. Let me, let me wrap it now and then I'm going to invite you because I'm far too long. How precious are your thoughts, O oh God. Were I to number them, they would be like the grains of sand on the seas. And you know me so well that when I'm awake, I'm with you. When I sleep, I'm with you. If I take the wings of the dawn, I'm there. And I always, always have at least one verse that gives me limitless access between the lagoon of my little bitty soul and this vast ocean of hope. We have placed sand in four stations and so I thought we would play in some sand. That's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> but what I'd like to ask you to do as the response to the word is to consider all the things that we've talked about 
and to come and put your hands in just one grain. So when I say, how precious are your thoughts of God? How vast, if I were to count them, they would outnumber the grain of the, seven, of the seas. One, if I, if, I, if I could count at 500 billion atoms a second, it would take me five. One, to count the atom, the insights. So I want you to come if you'd be willing, and just get a feel for this message. Feel, I want you to feel this message. Let your fingers run. And I want you, when you're at the bowl, to give God thanks and to quote your one verse. In the name of Jesus, I will start the procession. Amen.